Welcome to my podcast, In the Know. My series of interviews with amazing people doing amazing things as I travel around the world of no-tell. Okay, well, let's start. I mean, I guess you're kind of a central casting founder, right? Fancy schools, worked in venture, then you start a billion-dollar public company. It's normal. <laughs> well, I don't know if there's any kind of central casting founder out there, you know. Having worked a little bit in venture, you know, you really see that founders come from all walks of life and on all areas. I will say my path was very deliberate to become a founder. My whole life and my whole career had told myself that what I really wanted to do was to start a company. And so I thoughtfully sort of worked my way through my career, trying to put myself in a position to eventually be able to start something. And then Your I whole succeeded life. in doing that. I mean, Not literally since me, like I was two years old. Yeah, well, that's yeah, what I'm curious about. No astronaut, no like president. Uh, you know, I don't even recall what I used to think I wanted to be when I was like five years old. But pretty quick, like middle school, high school age, I knew I wanted to do something in business. Kind of when the internet bubble, you know, time around was becoming a big thing. I was kind of early yeah. in high school. Yeah, and mm -hmm. I was really fascinated by that and and loved reading about that and was excited about all the changes coming from the internet. I was kind of an early adopter of various consumer internet technologies as a kid. You know, just like well, was, so say more about that. So you're in high school course. and you're like really into AOL Instant Messenger. I mean, because what would it mean in like '99 to be yeah, hardcore? I mean, AOL like you made a website. Messenger. I mean, certainly, I built some websites. You know, I got my account terminated by AOL for building websites that were like too edgy. You know, I built like a South Park fan site. You know, I was in like middle school or something like that, oh, or wow. high school when South Park first came out, and it accidentally uh, took some proprietary information from South Park, which of course everyone was doing on the web at the time, and got in trouble for that, and had all the various modification systems for AOL, like AOL and all those fun like hacking <laughs> hackbot kind of things, and I was also really big into like early graphical computer games, like the Sierra Online set of computer games. Oh my God, um, I love those games so much. King's Quest. Yeah, yeah, exactly. King's Quest. And actually, interesting enough, interesting fact about me, I have a large collection of the original computer game art that the original artwork that went into producing some of those original games from Sierra, those like King's Sierra Quest. Games? Yeah, it's, wow. it's pretty cool. Leisure Suit Larry. What was the space one called? Space Quest. They're all called something Space Quest, Quest of course. Yeah. yeah. Well, Leisure Suit Larry didn't have Quest in the name, but maybe in the subtitle. I definitely spent a lot of time with that, that game trying to figure out how to be a <laughs> grown-up Lothario and actually talk to girls since there were none in my real life. I think in Leisure Suit Larry were the only places that I had the opportunity yeah. to chat with any. God help you if that's where you learned. Uh, <laughs> I didn't learn anything from. helpful. No, it was terrible. <laughs> but yeah, I love that game. And then, of course, the age of AOL kind of was cresting in 99, 2000, which I suppose is around when you were finishing high school. And certainly Netscape and all these exciting things on the web. And then what about... Um, I wonder if you remember this other game, which is, it's sort of, it overlaps with the Sierra games of the early 90s. It was called um, Karateka. No, I don't think I know it. It was a game for the Apple II and the Mac. And one of these, like, cosmic amazing things is, like, all these years later, I met the guy who made the game and his dad, who wrote all the music for it. And he's, like, some Hollywood producer. He made Prince of Persia later, which was a colossal game that I think everyone oh, yeah. must have played in the 90s and 2000s. And that dude, yep. he was like, he was not that different. Like, you know, I, I studied at Columbia and um, a little before you, like just a few years before you. And I guess you were at Harvard College. This guy was at Yale. He was at Yale in the, the 80s. And he made this game as a sophomore. It became this global sensation. And this was sort of, it comes from like the tinkerer's hobbyist fascination with technologies in some ways, right? And all these games and the kind of enthusiasm and passion you felt for them and tinkering with some of the other 
new technologies and the feeling of excitement. These were kind of the the root origin that sets you off on this entrepreneur's quest to borrow, you know, the Sierra game name system for Yeah. I don't know how much of that I would give complete credit to that. It started my fascination with the internet and software for sure. It was like an important, I think something like a lot of video games really train younger people like strategic thinking. And so I would say that certainly an important part of my development and strategic thinking, but I, I also wouldn't overstate the credit I would give to the computer games of my uh, childhood. <laughs> okay, fine. But I am curious, like how seriously you undertook the crafting of a kind of set of credentials and preparation to become an entrepreneur? Because when you showed up at college, like, what would you do to prepare yourself in this sort of grand liberal arts institution to prepare? So in college, you know, I went to Harvard College, and the very first thing I got involved in early on in college was this student-run company where I, like, ran two parts of this company over time and joined the board of this company. And it was, you know, Harvard has this thing called Harvard Student Agencies, which was the largest student-run corporation you get general management jobs there that you work full-time in some cases or part-time while you're a student. And so I, my freshman year, got a job as the assistant manager of the distribution business, which basically did a lot of ad sales and managed a staff and hired a staff of students to distribute like flyers and ads around campus to kids and, you know, got some good management experience both with people and sales and like finances there. And then I stayed on and, and did a second job, which was I became the manager of the cleaning business at Harvard, which was like a 500,000 revenue business that did all the student laundry plans and had a, ran a five-location dry cleaning service, did linen rentals and towel rentals for conferences that were held at Harvard. And, uh, you know, you like hire man- it's like you're, you operate very independently. You hire and manage the staff. You have a P&L. You run your marketing programs. You, man- you know, manage your operations. It was incredible experience. And so I sought that out right away. And uh, then, you know, eventually joined the board of that to get my first real, like, corporate board experience and loved every minute of that. And I think that's why I really cut my teeth and I I sought that out. And then sort of post school, I went into finance, which, you know, in some ways was a little bit of a detour from entrepreneurship, but in some ways was a really excellent generalist foundational skill set that I developed working at a place called Blackstone, where I did private equity investing. Through that experience, basically got to understand business models, got to understand financing, got to meet with and learn from many different CEOs and board rooms. You get access to that kind of high level information and relationships when you're at a place like Blackstone, even though you're like 22 and right out of college. And Mm -hmm. so that was like an amazing foundational experience for me. And I took that and I learned an unbelievable amount, maybe more than I could have learned in any other job out of college. But Working in private equity in the 2004 to 2008 timeframe in a place like Blackstone is really in, intense. I was there, Blackstone went public when I was there. Sort of the, the credit markets were going nuts and they were doing $20 billion public to private transactions every couple of weeks. You know, you're, when you're 22 years old and working there, you know, you're working 80 hours a week. You have no life. It's really intense. And at the same time, you know, one of the things I didn't like about it was that- You stayed for a while. You stayed for like four years. So I was a summer intern there in 04, and then I stayed there for three full years, which was the commitment I made to them when I joined at a college. I liked it okay, like I said, but the thing I didn't like about it was it wasn't very creative work from my perspective. And, you know, I knew I had wanted to start a company, and I felt like I had learned what I could learn there towards the end of starting a company, which is why I, I left and went to business school with the explicit goal of using my time at business school to get ready to start a company. 
Yeah. So, so far, you're like laying the groundwork in like a super rational way. I'm sure some of it was a little bit serendipitous. You may not have expected to run a cleaning company, but like, you know, running a small business and having some real revenue and having it sort of right there conveniently potted. And then, you know, I I doubt anybody was second guessing you when you're like, oh, I'm going to go to Wall Street, work for a big PE firm. These seem like really broad, generally useful credentials. But in your mind, you're like, okay, at a certain point, I'm going to be ready. I'm going to start a company and that's going to be my thing. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like 100% perfectly directed, but I would say I always had that goal in mind and was doing things with the goal of getting there. You know, certainly serendipity plays a role. I was able to get a job at Blackstone because I kind of had done really good in college. I had had a really high GPA and I had met an upperclassman who had gotten a job at Blackstone. And, you know, quite frankly, when I was 19 years old or 20 years old or however I was, how old I was when I applied to the internship there, I didn't even know what private equity was. (laughs) And so, you know, to some extent, like I was lucky that I had met someone that was like, oh, yeah, this private equity thing is a really good job to do right out of college. You should really try to get a job here. There's definitely an element of luck in that. But I think it's important. And I give this advice to people like you have to know where you're trying to go to get there. And so I had always sort of known that I was trying to get to the point in my career where I'd start a company and was trying to put in place kind of different parts of the skill set to do that. So you go to business school and you're positioning yourself and meeting the right people and thinking about it. You take all the venture capital classes, I guess, and then you're at Bessemer afterwards for a couple of years, which has created, I think, a number of amazing entrepreneurs. I probably couldn't list them off as well as you can, but I presume you were in the New York office working with Jeremy Levine and, and others. Yeah, I was in the New York office, worked with Jeremy, worked with a number of other folks at Bessemer. And yeah, I mean, there's definitely been a, a couple of folks who've left Bessemer to start companies. I wouldn't say that it's the most traditional path for people who are in VC, but sometimes that does happen. You know, I left. They were supportive of that. I actually told them in my job interview during business school that I was going to try to leave and start my own company as soon as I could. And, and they were nice enough to think that that was a good thing when they hired me rather than disqualifying me from the job, which was great. And, you know, left. And actually, originally when I left, I had a kind of a different business idea than Blue Apron. It was more around this idea of building a crowdfunding website for science and research. And it was right around the time when Kickstarter was becoming a huge phenomenon. And the idea was to build a Kickstarter-like business for the science and research market, which had a lot of similar attributes to Hmm. creative projects, which were on Kickstarter, where they were sort of had funding issues, but were really in demand by the end beneficiaries. Crowdfunding and bringing people together on the internet seemed like a good path to that. Anyway, that was my original idea. I mean, o- over the years, having worked in lots of different startups and around probably 100 different companies, there is a pattern. And one of the patterns is smart, ambitious venture, usually associate, because if you've advanced too far, then you, you just plan to stay because it starts to seem too easy. Usually associate <laughs> decides they're going to start yeah. a company. They're watching a river of different ideas and patterns and things that are financeable and new changing technologies. And into their mind comes either one or maybe five, depending on their style of thinking, ideas that they then either develop really deeply if it's one idea or they start testing three, four, five things and sort of shopping them if they're more a horizontal style thinker. And I wonder what was your approach as you're meeting entrepreneurs and understanding a landscape? Like you knew you wanted, you wanted to start something, but you didn't know what. How did you get to the thing? And because clearly, as you profess yourself, the first idea you ended up abandoning. Seems like. Yeah, totally. I mean, so when I was at Bessemer, I spent a lot of my time thinking about big transitioning areas where there are catalysts and high secular growth trends, which are the things that VCs are looking for. And so you get to know, oh, these are areas that are big and exciting overall markets that might attract venture financing. 
you learn how to pitch a business to a venture capitalist to talk the talk, to look at the right metrics, know the metrics you need to show, think how about understand how to structure term sheets and, and structure the right kind of milestone-based approach to business growth. And you spend a lot of time, honestly, most of your time as a junior-ish VC is spent meeting people. And so I spent a lot of time like meeting people who could be my potential co-founder, meeting people who could be potential angel investors in my company, because you're also building relationships with the angel investors who might have companies for the VC fund to invest in. All of that was really additive when I was eventually looking to start the company. And it also gave me some credibility to help recruit co-founders when I wanted to do that. Originally, when I had this one idea, I recruited my first co-founder to move from Boston to New York to do it with me. After a couple months, I concluded it wasn't the right idea and that what we wanted to do was Blue Apron. And we came up with the idea for Blue Apron in a very systematic approach to the market. We were looking at, and I was specifically interested in large retail categories that had very, very little e-commerce penetration yet. And the online grocery category was one of the biggest categories that exists in the U.S., $800 billion category. And at the time, this was like 2011 or early 2012, it was like 1% penetration with e-commerce or something like that. And, and the thesis, which is in some ways a common VC thesis, but looking specifically at this industry was not as common, was every big retail category is eventually move online like many of the ones that have already done it. And how do you create a business that can capture that share of wallet that's more digitally native, that attends to the needs of a newer, younger audience, and fulfills all the needs of the business operationally and otherwise around a digital delivery mechanism? Let me just pause you for a sec. So this is like a super top-down. You're using some parallelism in your reasoning, right? So you're like, let me go find a big market that doesn't yet have some of the forces that I've observed in some of these other verticals. All right, here's one. Then the next question is, because now you've identified a market. The next question will be, what's the product that might match this opportunity, right? And the thing I want to just investigate with you is the other one, the science Kickstarter that you were kicking around. Did you follow a similar sequence of reasoning there? Or was it a different one, a little bit more bottoms up where it's like, oh, here's something that works. Let me draw an analogy to a related field and try to apply it. Because that's another way that people generate ideas, right? It's like, oh, I'm doing the Blue Apron of X, right? One of the most imitated businesses of the last decade, I think. (laughs) And and you ironically start out by doing the Kickstarter of X. Yeah, yeah. I think that particular idea, it started off as I was interested in doing something that leveraged the internet in a unique way that hadn't been leveraged before. And that was the theme that I was researching there and looking at the internet is a great tool for bringing together collective action. And there are a lot of businesses that came out of that. Kickstarter, I think, was one of the most fascinating ones, especially at the time. Now it's it's a little bit tapped out in its growth relative to the time, but it was really transforming the way projects got funded, really cool business, and saw that as one of the incarnations of that idea and used that as inspiration to think of what other categories might be really interesting there. Now, don't get me wrong, that line of reasoning was not the right line of reasoning in some ways for what I was trying to accomplish with the science crowdfunding business, because, you know, quite frankly, I got into it. And I would say we really quickly launched a website because that didn't cost us any money and was a way to really test the market. And the thing we really got into as we were doing diligence was like talking to scientists, talking to universities, talking to funders of these projects. And our conclusion in doing that after just a couple months of work was that it would just be way too difficult to build a business of the scale that we wanted to build with that business model in that market. 
a lot of that work came from those learnings came from actually getting in there and talking to real people out there to get their feedback and to get their input. And, and right. You know, it was easy to launch a website, so you sort of launch the company in, the, in a way before even talking to anyone because it's faster to just make a website than to talk to people. But then as you start doing it, you discover the disanalogies between the fund a library or fund my art project and fund a cure for some special kind of cancer. Yeah, totally. You know, it doesn't mean that it isn't a problem that can be solved with a different solution because uh, it's definitely a big mm-hmm. problem. But, you know, that was our conclusion. And, you know, we really quickly shifted gears on it, having spent no money. I had actually, when I left Bessemer, I raised a little under $800,000 right away before I had anything. Really? So you just went to your partners and the other angels and stuff, and you're like, hey, you like me, I like you, I'm smart, I've been working in venture, and I was here and there. Invest. Invest in my unknown company, like without even an idea or around that? Well, it was a lot of the investors were just investors who wanted to support me, who I built relationships with over the years and said, hey, look, match to someone we think will be successful no matter what he does. I think Mm. some of them were interested in the idea, which was this crowdfunding idea, but most of them were just invested in, in me. And I think ultimately that was a really good thing because when we quickly decided we wanted to do something else, it didn't really create too many problems. Well, you and hadn't even spent anything, like, and they were investing in we you. Basically the spent, idea. Yeah. yeah, we spent like $50,000 of the $800,000 or something like that. I wasn't paying myself a salary. I was paying my co-founders a small salary. And it was really easy. And everyone was like, great, we believe in this new thing too, and we think you'll make it work, so go for it. There was literally one person of the group who didn't like the new idea of Blue Apron and then ended up, unfortunately, selling his stock to <laughs> one of my close friends who was an angel investor at a huge discount, which was a terrible financial decision for him in retrospect. He would have made a ton of money on Blue Apron stock. But, you know, we kept all the same investors and, and just uh, kept going. And it was also one of the things that allowed us to move really fast on Blue Apron once we had the idea. So that's so interesting. Is it widely, do you tell everyone that, that Blue Apron is like the pivot from your nerdy science project? I mean, I'm, I'm telling you, and this is not the most private setting uh, to tell someone. I tell folks whenever it's relevant and interesting for lessons on entrepreneurship, I would say, I don't even know how much I would call it a pivot because we barely even got going on the other business idea, to be honest. Sure. It wasn't and also like, the term pivot is a little like bit ridiculous. On it. yeah, yeah, it's like you were exploring a few ideas. And yeah, it was really more of that because we hadn't spent any real money or any real time on the other idea before we just landed on Blue Apron, but it wasn't, I would say, like just the very first thing that came to us. Okay, so then looking top down at this grocery market, and you're not the only one who's top down at the grocery market. I think for a couple of decades, people have been looking at this thing. I mean, Webfin and Amazon had a whole bunch of forays before you, but the selection of the market, as sensible as that may be, underpenetrated by e-commerce. I think the aha moment is when you decide subscription. I would not say that. No, actually, subscription was a really useful tactic for Blue Apron to grow really fast in the early days. But I would mm-hmm. not say that subscription is the core feature of Blue Apron. I What's think, the core um, feature? Well, like what is the product? Really and it may have evolved yeah, over time. But it's like- a cooking. Ex- it's fundamentally a cooking experience. Like Blue Apron made cooking fun and easy for people and also more affordable. I would say that for a lot of people, the cooking experience was terrible. Like going to the grocery store, people hated going to the grocery store. Selecting recipes, it was too expensive and impractical to go out and actually cook around those recipes. One of the insights is that the reason people go grocery shopping is because they want to cook dinner fundamentally and that the grocery experience wasn't really designed around that. And so, you know, there are other insights along the way, too. One big insight was that part of the reason that online grocery had not been successful in the past is that it was merchandised online all wrong. 
who looks at a, an ad, like a digital <laughs> ad of a raw piece of chicken breast and says, oh, yeah, like I really want to buy that. But you look at yeah. a beautiful ramen noodle soup or something like that, you're inspired to go out and cook dinner or, or buy that product. One of the other big operational insights we developed was that you can deliver this through a centrally run sort of manufacturing fulfillment center and deliver to the entire United States without having to run your own refrigerated distribution network, which I think is one of the things that people who had tried to tackle online grocery at that point in time and in the past had spent a gazillion dollars to do direct-to-door refrigerated trucks between Fresh Direct, Amazon Fresh, Webvan, and the like. And it really limited your ability to grow outside of like core dense metro areas. And our product was specifically designed to be able to stay cold and fresh through our packaging design, through the product design, and the like, through sort of more traditional last-mile delivery networks, which allowed us to scale our business to 100% of the U.S. population really quickly. Because you chilled the box? Yeah, fundamentally, we chilled the box, not the truck. Let's try to do this step-by-step, because I think you are politely and modestly laying out like, hey, it just made sense. However, the world, the day before you switch from science Kickstarter to Blue Apron, especially for food and grocery, is so different back at that moment than it is now. There's like a huge layer cake of things that you guys decide to change, and I'm curious So first of all, what is the world before, right? So yes, we know that groceries are 99% offline and 1% are online. And the 1% that are online are some of these last miley guys like Pete Todd or somebody where you work from a really limited catalog and the truck comes and it's super schedule-y and you got to like meet them. And I suppose in New York, there's this uh, fresh truck company that must have been operating by that point, right? 2011, 2010. Amazon at that point in 2010, 11 does not have a fresh offering of any kind. To my knowledge, they have a lot of like you got to buy six cans of tomato sauce, and that can be your grocery offering. I think they had a very limited. They had a very limited Amazon Fresh product at the time, which was pretty small. So could I get like a jug of milk that way, or in very limited geographies with schedule? Oh, Seattle probably. Similar, similar to Fresh Direct. I don't remember exactly when they launched that, and they they've obviously changed their model quite significantly. But over the years, but at the time they were actually it was a really struggling business at Amazon that they had been trying to make work for. A long time, actually, because they saw, just like everyone else, the huge importance of grocery right. to the retail market and to con- e-commerce consumers. But it was right. hard to execute on them. And their approach was just very different. They wanted to be everything to everybody, and they still, of course, do. To them, it wouldn't make any sense to try to do a direct by mail sort of offering, kind of like what we were doing around a curated, more limited offering, because they wanted to have your entire grocery basket. And by the way, like right. you're being pretty, pretty smart and successful about that today. But but back in the day, you know. They yeah, they had failed like nine different ways together. by that point. Yeah, yeah. So that was Amazon. And then, you know, the 90s effort of Cosmo had died and gone, and there was no such thing even remotely close to the Instacart, DoorDash, sort of crowd delivery, last mile, Uber, whatever sort of thing. That did not exist. And so basically, right. if you wanted to get groceries, really the only thing was you walked to the key food sea town if you're in a city or you drove to the Safeway Kroger or somewhere else and you got your groceries. So that was the world. It was really overwhelmingly offline. And there wasn't even a place where the future had become real yet. I mean, maybe a fresh direct was in the single digit percentages of a large city like New York. It wasn't a dominant player. Yep, correct. Were there any subscription boxes? Yeah, there were uh-huh. some products out there in subscription boxes. BarkBox, I think, was something that had existed at the time. You know, Birchbox had existed at the time, and those businesses when were, had been those guys are like 2009 or 10 or something like that. 
I don't know all the history of it, but I think probably yeah, they're not they're not ten years no, prior. They're sort of roughly no. in the cohort. Yeah, exactly. Even the Amazon subscribing say maybe diapers.com and their sort of diapers subscription thing was they had already been acquired yeah. by then. But we built in subscription as a tool for convenience for our customers. I would say over time, you know, subscription became more of a a feature than a business model because we wanted to have offerings to consumers for people who don't like subscription. As we became a huge company with millions of customers, we wanted to be able to serve people who also didn't like subscription. Most workspaces today are vying for millennial attention by creating unlimited beer and ping pong tables. Those are all great things to do. Maybe at work, maybe not at work, but it's completely missing the point, which is that our minds are increasingly taken up by bullshit and by media that wants us rather than wants to give to us. And at work, in order to expand our creativity, to focus our minds, there are a number of hacks that we can introduce in addition to beer and ping pong, like meditation, like reading Simon Sinek, Seth Godin. But that all aside, it's really about the space that we occupy. So if we're in a cluttered space, our mind is often cluttered. That aside, having a space that is diverse as the people are, that is comfortable, that is easily movable, that can be constructed and reconstructed and deconstructed in the same amounts of time, where you're surrounded by other people that are enjoying that type of space is a pretty cool thing. If the workspace can be a definite workspace, but a good workspace, then you're in business. So this podcast is brought to you by Notel. Thanks for listening. You're sort of hammering this important distinction of, yeah, it worked to grow really fast early on and now things are different. But tell me how it worked early on. It must have created incredible dynamics on acquisition and retention of customers, the value of your dollars spent in marketing. My understanding is there are a few businesses in the world where people spend so much money and if you switch them into the subscription category, it's just unlike anything that had previously existed in e-commerce. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, one of the very first things we did when deciding to launch the business was sketch out the unit economics. I think that's a really important thing that people do when they're looking at business ideas. And we were just floored by the revenue generation potential of our of our product if people came back all the time. You know, people would pay us 60 or $120 a week for a basket of recipes, you know, at about 10 bucks per person per meal, which is very affordable. Which and is super cheap. It's much cheaper than a restaurant. It's comparable to shopping the grocery, especially when you like forgot a spice and have to go spend $7 totally. for one bottle, you know? Yeah. And actually, if you do the math on it and in certain kinds of ways, it's actually cheaper than the grocery store too. Certainly it's cheaper if you can't find everything in the right amount. But also when you look at the quality level of our ingredients in terms of the sustainability practices, the uniqueness of the ingredients, the, the quality levels. And grocery store waste. I mean, uh, everything in my fridge, well, maybe not everything, but far more than I like <laughs> ends up turning. Yeah, totally. Actually, early on, that was one of our key messaging points where it was like 40% of food in this country is wasted. And we thought we were building a model where we would dramatically reduce waste. And quite frankly, we did do that. Waste in the supply chain, waste from a perishability, from an inventory loss perspective and shrink at the retail level because everything we do is, was made to order pretty much. And waste at the consumer's home because we're giving you everything you need in the right amounts and built around a dinner experience. And so there's a real cost advantage there. That was a really big part of the early Blue Apron pitch that the company doesn't really talk about as much anymore. But, you know, those supply chain efficiencies were one of the really early on exciting things 
that got a lot of venture capitalists pretty excited about the company. So it's early on, you do the math, you make a little spreadsheet, one customer, what are they going to buy? And you're like, holy cow, if they just buy a little bit more than just the first time, they're spending hundreds of months and there's going to be some customers that are spending thousands a year with us. Wow. Let's go out and get customers. And then you think, why don't we offer a subscription option? That'll be amazing if you offer that. And that is on fire in the early going. Everyone's choosing yeah, it or your I mean, marketers decide to be No, it's totally powerful. on fire. It was totally mm-hmm. on fire from pretty much day one. I mean, the first week of the company, I basically begged 20 friends of mine to sign up and try the product. And their eyes literally blew out of their heads with excitement. We were getting comments, things like, this is amazing. You've changed my life. You've saved my marriage from the very first days, like unbelievable enthusiasm. And we built this referral program, which was the workhorse of our acquisition engine for a while. And actually, it still is to this day, a huge part of Blue Apron's acquisition engine. And, you know, people would send a free delivery to a friend who wanted to try out our product and they'd sign up. And and that's kind of how the business grew in the early days, exponentially through word of mouth from both that referral program and then through the inherent shareable nature of what we do. Because in a lot of ways, we didn't cook. The company wasn't producing the product. It was our customers who were cooking their own dinner and therefore had this affinity to it that they were really proud of what they created. And so they'd post Mm -hmm. it on Facebook, you know, share it on social media, talk about it at work. And that really added to the virality element of it as well. Um, How interesting. Yeah. Like, you know, very few people eat alone. And then, of course, you're, it's like a maker business, just like sharing. And then you send the card to someone and they, you know, yeah, that's, that's amazing. It was that plus the fundamental feeling of a job well done and the fundamental feeling of, oh, wow, I'm really proud of myself that I made this unbelievable home-cooked meal that looks like a professional chef made it. And I think that self-satisfaction was one of the emotions that really drove a lot of the sharing. Right, the unboxings. Like, it is just, you're just, like, thrilled when you open the, open the product the first time. And the subscription thing. Like, talk to me a little bit more about the subscription thing in the early days, because what, what I'm hearing is people wanted to subscribe. They were so excited about it, so proud of themselves. It made them feel so good. They shared it with other people, their family, their friends, whoever's home. And they're just like, yes, I want this every week, please. It's simplifying my life by making my life better. Yeah? And so they tick a box when yeah. they first sign up or the second time? or Yeah, no, absolutely. At the time, we were subscription only. You know, people would sign up, they'd subscribe, and our revenue lifetime values, in terms of the cumulative revenue we would generate per customer, were through the roof. I mean, thousands of dollars. And that resulted in really high lifetime values. And that's also how we got into paid marketing, because we were able to generate paybacks on our marketing spend in like weeks or like a month or two. Well, most people um, take so years. That, most people take years, for sure. And actually, Boyfriend today even still has really good marketing economics. The public markets don't fully appreciate this, but our CEO, our, our current CEO, has said publicly, you know, our paybacks are still less than 12 months. And wow. that's a really unusual thing in an e-commerce business and is, is a really important engine of a business's health. Yeah, I think most companies, uh, in well, on the internet, but certainly offline too, uh, you know, they fight a battle to the death to get you to buy something once. And they just cross their fingers and hope that you'll be back. Most people lose money on the first order, the second order, and then there is no persistent relationship. Certainly for these subscription customers, the economics must be phenomenal. Yeah, absolutely. So you've broadened the offering over time, but a, a second thing I want to investigate a little bit is this thing, the box. I think this box is one of the most imitated internet ideas of all. Its own era. Like there was an era of the Blue Apron of X 
the way there was like, a, you know, there was like, a, oh, I have a social network for dogs. I think, as you just mentioned, there was a Blue Apron for dogs. Never mind whether it was a little before or a little after. I mean, the box, this was like an era-defining breakthrough. And I guess you were pointing out a handful of things here. One was large addressable markets important. Changing the logistics and the supply chain is important. The subscription mechanics are important. And what happens when you open the box? Like what's in there? How does it all fit together? How is it all so fabulous? That's another dimension. And different people sort of squared that circle in different ways. But they did apply it to like children, to um, gardening, like perfume, just like everything. And I wonder what the feeling is like just to be on the other side as this like river of copycat Me Too variations, different triangulations was coming at you. How did that feel? Generally speaking, you're really proud of it, you know, and you're always proud whenever you see the name of the company you gave birth to out in the wild out there. Whenever I'd hear someone mention Blue Apron on a, in an elevator or walking down the street or it gets mentioned in a Saturday Night Live clip or when it's in a roundup of on a tech press talking about this is Blue Apron for this, you're just always proud of your creation. I say the thing that we were less proud of and more frustrated about was when, like, obviously it, it spawned some more direct competitors, which is a business just issue. Just the true copies. Yeah, a true copy. Pretty much for the entirety of my time as CEO of the business, which was six years, we were the dominant player and dramatically outcompeted all of those copycats. Over time, you know, they got raised a little bit of capital here and there, and people in the market started copying more of the things we did. You know, it became a little bit harder to compete with some of those folks. And so... I would say certainly you would love to be able to be a monopoly if you're creating a, a business, but you know there's not a lot of businesses out there where you can create monopolies, especially in product categories, e-commerce, CPG, other kinds of consumer products. Quite frankly, a lot of the moat you're building is on the brand differentiation, the customer data that you're collecting, the operational cost structure and know-how. And those are all real important differentiators. But at the same time, you know, you're you're working in big competitive markets, especially in food and grocery. It's one of the most competitive markets out there. And so you don't love the fact that you spawn copycats, but it kind of comes with the territory anytime you create a successful consumer business. How much later were they? So let's see, who are some of them? There was Plated in New York, probably just a few blocks away from where you guys started your company. There was the German one, HelloFresh from the Samwer brothers. I believe they were the, they created it. They didn't invest. And there was Marley Spoon, another German one, which I actually am friendly with the CEO and I'm close to that company. And I know his founding story is that he met the guys from Plated. They asked him to invest. He said he'd love to, but in fact, he'd like to open up their company in a different market. They said like, yeah, maybe, I don't know, and then never really got back to him. And while he was still waiting for it, he was just like, okay, screw it, I'm just going to do it. And so That's really funny. I actually didn't there's probably like that. a chain of influence that gets all the way to all of them, right? That's really funny. We were, I think, the first to launch in the U.S., but Plated and HelloFresh both launched really quickly around the same time we did. And so we were always competing with those guys from pretty early on, and we were the dominant execution-oriented winner for a lot of reasons. And then, you know, there was another wave later on of companies that got created, like Marley Spoon, which I think came much later, some others. I've heard of some other ones, like Sun Basket and stuff like that, but those are a generation later, and none of them got quite as as large, as far as I can tell. Yes, correct. So these copycats, do you think there is like a treat-out origin to you guys launching and your phenomenal 
early growth where folks are just watching the numbers and they are copying? Are there alumni from your group or folks that you had like pitched that went out and started these companies? Like, because there's a handful that are like so clearly and so similar. Not really? I mean, look, it's a consumer business, right? So any customer can right. just go hear about it and sign up. So it's very, and we were not shy about PR. We were screaming from the rooftops about what we were doing right. and, and we're growing 100% month customers. on month and people are like okay well let me try that in yeah whatever the UK yeah and that, look and that comes with a cost a little bit but at the same time when you're a consumer business you need to be out there doing what you can to build your brand and grow your customer base yeah very true so the emergence of copycats is one of the compliments paid to you by a market and it can be a little bit irritating of course another one is going from 10 people to 100 to a thousand and you seem like a lovely and friendly guy, and you've had a few, uh, you know, opportunities to work with lots of smart people, but it didn't sound as you were going through your past experiences that you had had to give the all-hands talk in front of a thousand people very often before Blue Apron. No, not in front of a thousand people, for sure. Like I said, I had a little bit of management experience from my time in college, but it was nothing like what I experienced from Blue Apron, and, and um, you know, really had to learn on the job, and I think, um, you know, we did a really good job. So. Over the course of my time at Blue and I built it from nothing to 5,000 people and wow. 900 million of revenue and took it public. And I was a public company CEO for a, a little bit of time. Really, you have to scale yourself. You know, you certainly have to scale repeatedly the talent at your company. I think certainly the hardest part of doing all of this is the people and making sure that you have the right talent at the right times. And, and when you're growing to 900 million revenue in six years, like you're constantly in need of next order level talent to, to bring the business to the next phase. And so I think doing that at the pace that we were doing at certainly was difficult and strained the business for sure. Yeah, talk to me a little bit about that. One to 5,000 in, I guess, I don't know, three or four years. It's faster than anyone has ever done it. There might be five or ten or something people in the world that ever had to deal with it just doesn't happen yeah a lot of that had to do with our business growth and a lot of those people at the company were entry-level workers at our fulfillment centers and i think that that was a new world for me and um, required us to create some pretty you know unique hr programs to attract hundreds of people at a time to interviews to provide the the work that we needed to just get our product out every day. And I would say it became a huge work stream at the company and certainly a huge cost center at the company to recruit and manage and do the labor planning required to staff each of the shifts at each of our centers on a weekly basis for the right volume and the right kind of production. You know, in a lot of ways, what we became is a, a pretty sophisticated manufacturing operation. And that's what we ultimately had to end up running. Most of those employees were quote-unquote, manufacturing and fulfillment employees. And so, yeah, I think it was certainly one of the core day-to-day -day challenges at the business that I think we spent the most time dealing with and troubleshooting, as you imagine, because, you know, it, naturally there are growing pains when you have so many new people at any given point in the company, but also when they're manufacturing-type workers, um, there's some unique challenges with that, too. What was the division of staff of headquarters versus line workers was it like 90 10 the line versus headquarters or 99 um, one depending on how you define it so we had management obviously employees in our fulfillment centers also working on all sorts of things and and so you know probably at the peak and believe has uh somewhat less employees now since going public but you know at the peak maybe it was about 800 
management employees relative to a little over 5,000 total employees. Oh, well, still, like, just, like, a huge staff. And some of these folks were senior experienced successful leaders in all walks of life, and they're reporting to you, and this is, like, the first thing you've ever been the head of. It must have been so tricky. Yeah. You know, I think, um, like I said, the hardest part of the business was the people side. I personally went out and sought out an executive coach to help me think through how I could scale myself and the organization and the team. And and, uh, I was really proud of that fact. We made lifelong learning one of the core company values and Hmm. wanted people to know that like we all had to constantly level ourselves up to, to build the business to the level we wanted to build. And we also invested quite a lot of money in coaches for our mid-level managers and training for our people so that they could ultimately scale with the company as well. And I think we got a lot of really positive feedback from our people about that who really enjoyed those programs. Talk to me about the roller coaster. What part about the roller coaster? The, uh, the emotional parts of the roller coaster? I mean, you go from being the doyen and you're public and everything's crazy and all these different people with all their different opinions. Just give me a little bit of a feeling of what it's like to ride. It's tough. Blueprint has definitely had its ups and downs since going public. We've had a really, really tough go of it. Quite frankly, the public markets have not been kind to our business for a variety of reasons. And, you know, like when you're starting a company, like in the very early stage, you don't know if you're going to survive. And some days you're like on the cover of the New York Times or on the cover of Forbes. And it's really easy to get numb to that. And I'd say for me, and I don't know if this is a, a good or a bad thing, probably a net a bad thing, but I got pretty numb to it because there's just so much up and down where you're just one foot in front of the other every day, all day long, just taking what the world will, will, will throw at you. And I think that that's good because you make progress constantly putting one foot in front of the other. But you also don't celebrate the wins as much as you'd like. You know, when I look back at some of the unbelievable and amazing accomplishments that we've had over the years, you know, many of them went by without me really like reflecting on that and like really celebrating like some of these huge accomplishments and wins because you're just off to the next problem. And I wish I had spent more time enjoying the moment, I would say. But at the same time, you know, you're just also not as down when something bad happens. And I think that that's really survival mode for any kind of founder. It worked, but I think uh, that was just my, how I emotionally dealt with some of those ups and downs. Thank you so much for talking to me about how you've created this incredible business that I think probably everyone in America knows about. I mean, it is a rare brand recognition is crazy high. Yeah, it's amazing. It's one of the most famous brands in the world, and you just made it in a short time, and it's such an incredible accomplishment. So thank you for spending a little time talking to me about it. I know there's many demands on your time, but I suspect that the folks that listen to In the Know will be curious and pleased and and inspired by your story. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Hey, listeners. Thanks for subscribing. Or thanks for just tuning in. A special request from me on this podcast that you are growing to love. Write a review, please. A five-star review spreads the word and people will follow. Cheers, thank you, and stay tuned for the next 30 episodes. I'm so excited we've just passed a big milestone. It didn't take long and all of a sudden we're up at 40 episodes of people telling us how to spread great ideas.